also couldn't find it. A very good evening to our church family who's gathered here tonight. Good evening to, to each one of you. Um, as we start, we're going to just reflect very quickly in the first four, four um, verses of Psalm 100. And I'll read it. It might not come up on the screen, but I'm going to read it for us. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is good. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and sheep of his pasture. Let's stand and let's sing by faith. turn in your Bible so long to uh, John chapter 6, John chapter 6 verse 16. We'll turn to that passage shortly, but uh, you can get your Bibles ready, but you also do have a handout uh, which has it on as well, so um, please keep that before you as we come to our, our next uh, portion of God's Word this evening. What a joy to just be able to share God's Word with you again tonight and to be able to have just heard what God is doing in the lives of different people. As we said to those who were at the camp, every single one of us has a testimony um, and it is the work of God's grace in our lives. And uh, it's lovely to hear what God is doing and I would encourage each and every one of you to be thinking more uh, about God's work in your life, how it relates to Jesus Christ and His transforming power so that you are ready to share that with others. But as we think about this portion before us this evening, I'm sure you've heard of people uh, refer to others as fair-weather Christians. Um, and that's not a compliment. Um, fair-weather Christian is a term used to refer to those whose walk with the Lord uh, is directly linked to how well things are going in their lives. When things are going well, uh, when they are physically healthy, when they are financially well-employed, uh, when they are emotionally happy in their relationships, well, then they are on cloud nine spiritually. Everything is just awesome, and they love coming to church. They volunteer to serve in ministry. Uh, Sunday worship times are the highlight of the week. But when any area of their life encounters a headwind, uh, any form of opposition, or especially if, if a season of life could be described as a full-blown storm, then they are nowhere to be found. 
They stop reading their Bibles. They stop coming to church and attending small group. Uh, their WhatsApp status and Instagram posts become noticeably cynical and negative. Well, this kind of Christian, if we could call him that, is the kind that we encountered in the message which Kyle uh, preached last time with the feeding of the 5,000 uh, in John chapter 6. Uh, this large multitude who gathered on the, the sloping green hills beside the Sea of Galilee, they were enjoying an all-you-can-eat takeaway meal, thinking how much they really wanted this man Jesus to be their king. Now, if Jesus had made an appeal on, on that afternoon for volunteers to help in children's ministry or prison ministry or soup kitchen or live streaming, uh, the, the queues would have been endless. But we are told in verse 15 that Jesus was not interested in that kind of Christian. Carl reminded us previously that kind of Christian only saw Jesus as a ticket to freedom and food. Well, the reality, I think, of this fair weather Christianity, it continues. It's very much alive uh, in our day and age, and perhaps even more so as we consider the impact of the headwind of COVID over the last couple of years, the impact that it's had on us as a church here at Honeyridge and Christians across the world. So many people who seem to have drifted away from God, drifted away from the things of God, in a sense, through that, revealing what their hearts desire more than Jesus. So if Jesus was not interested in these fair-weather Christians as his followers back then, who is he looking for to be his true disciples? And so that leads us on to this next miraculous sign which Jesus performed, and we read about it in verses 16 to 21. So let's read that together. Thanks, Norman, if you can bring that up. John chapter 6, verse 16. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. And when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Now, this miracle of Jesus walking on the water, it's recorded for us in, in three of the Gospels, in Mark and Matthew and John. And John's account that we've just read is the shortest of the three. And so the handout that I've given to each of you this evening lists the three accounts side by side uh, for your reference as we look at this this evening. Matthew and Mark's Gospels were written earlier than John's Gospel and were widely distributed by the time John wrote his gospel. So it is most likely that John expected his, his readers to be aware of these more fuller accounts from the other gospels. And so as we work our way through this account in John 6, we're going to be drawing from both uh, Mark and Matthew's accounts to just fill in some of the details for us. And rather than having you paging backwards and forwards between Matthew, Mark, and John, uh, it's all there before you on the page. 
So, so coming down off the mountain of this really a spiritual high of the feeding of the 5,000, we are told that the disciples went down to the Sea of Galilee, they got into a boat, and they started a journey across the Sea of Galilee to the other side. Roughly a, a seven-mile journey across the Sea of Galilee to where they were staying in Capernaum. But Matthew and Mark give us a bit more information which tells us that this traveling to the other side was actually Jesus' idea. He instructed them to go across the lake to the other side, and he told them that he would meet them there. And so our journey for these 12 disciples into one of the worst nights of their life, it began with their obedience to Jesus. This was not some crazy harebrained idea to go for sundowners on the lake, which turned into a mariner's nightmare. No, the events that followed were a direct result of their obedience to Jesus. And so already, as we just pause to reflect on that, there's a, a point of application this evening, which is that very often, obedience to Jesus does not lead to fair weather. In actual fact, Jesus makes it very clear that if we are obedient to him, the world will hate us because it hated him first. The world will persecute us because it persecuted him first. And so while we can certainly thank God and should thank God for seasons in our lives which are relatively peaceful, seasons of prosperity, seasons of comfort, if we constantly live in a world which loves us, then Jesus says that it's most likely evidence that we belong to the world, that we do not belong to him. And so very often doing the right thing which pleases God, that is in direct obedience to Jesus, this will not lead to comfort, it will not lead to prosperity, it will not lead to popularity, but it will lead to hardship and persecution and certainly opposition. So we see this with the disciples, obedient to Jesus and they head off into a storm. So we move on in the story. Matthew and Mark tell us that when evening came, the disciples were now out at sea and Jesus was alone on the land. But look at verse 17b of John 6. Listen to how John, who we must remember, he was himself on this boat. How does he record not the facts of their GPS coordinates in the middle of the lake, but the emotions that they were feeling? John says, it was now dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. Now John knows, assumes that we've read Mark and Matthew, and we know that Jesus was going to walk on the water. But in those late hours of the night, into the early hours of the morning, John says, I was on the boat. It was dark, and we were alone, and Jesus was not there. Now isn't this just so real? Doesn't this reflect the story which is so often common to all of us who follow Jesus? That after times of great spiritual highs, perhaps after a great battle has been won in your life against temptation, or perhaps after the high of a wonderful church camp weekend, or perhaps after a time of intense spiritual growth through discipleship in the church, or perhaps even 
after a time of special support and bonding that occurs at times of intense grief as a church. Times in which we can all speak so clearly of God's presence and help and comfort and strength that after those times, we descend into the valley and it's dark and we feel all alone. I think this was the experience of countless saints throughout the Bible. Think of Moses, think of Elijah, David, Peter himself, countless saints across church history, and this is no doubt at times true of your and my own experience. Well, it's in these times of darkness and spiritual loneliness that we need to be reminded of the truth of God. We need to be reminded of His character, of His power, of His purposes in the lives of His children. So where was Jesus? John just tells us, we were on the boat, it was dark, and we were alone. Jesus was not there. But Matthew and Mark tell us that after Jesus said goodbye to the disciples on the shore, he went and he dismissed the crowds, and then he went up to the top of the mountain to pray. And both the other gospels tell us that actually it was Jesus who was alone. See, the disciples, they had each other on the boat, 12 of them, but Jesus was on the mountain alone. He was alone to pray. He was alone with his Father. And I think Mark's account helps us to understand something of what Jesus was in prayer to God about. And I would argue that he was praying for his disciples. Although they felt alone, because Jesus was physically not there, he was very much with them in prayer. And Mark's gospel gives us an amazing insight into the, the deity of Jesus Christ, his omniscience, the fact that he knows all things, sees all things. In this very moment of John's darkness and aloneness, Mark tells us in chapter 6 verse 48 that while Jesus was on the mountain praying, he saw he saw his disciples were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. Now this does not refer to the fact that Jesus could see them physically, because it was dark, and Matthew tells us that they were a long way from the land, a distance of three to four miles, that's more than six kilometers. And yet as Jesus prayed, he saw them struggling. Isn't this such an encouragement to us today as we go through our valleys of darkness, spiritual darkness, times of trouble, the storms of life? Jesus sees. He's not absent because he's busy with other important things. He sees because he is interceding for us. He's at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. Hebrews 4 verse 14 reminds us that since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is remote and who's removed, who's unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted, has been tested as we are, yet without sin. So let us with confidence then draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. 
William Hendrickson says, while the storm was raging and the darkness enveloped the little group of men, they were nevertheless perfectly safe. For upon the hill, the Lord was interceding for them. It's a beautiful picture, he says, which has many present day applications. Let's move on in our account because although it is comforting to know that Jesus sees and he knows what we are going through, comforting even to know that he is praying for us in our trials, that doesn't make the present reality of our trials or suffering or grief any less real, does it? Any less painful. John tells us in verse 18 that the sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. Mark tells us that the disciples were making progress painfully. That word painfully is used to describe the pain of physical torture. It's what it was like rowing the boat into this headwind through the night. Matthew tells us that they were being beaten by the waves. No sooner coming up for air and another breaker just crashed over the, the little boat and pushed them under again. Now we know that the Sea of Galilee uh, is about 215 meters below sea level. And it's surrounded by relatively high mountains. And so as the evening cool air descends on the mountains and the warm air above the lake rises, the heavier cold mountain air comes rushing down the slopes across the Sea of Galilee, causing massive waves to rise up on the sea. And we are told between the three accounts that it was about the fourth watch of the night. That's about 3 a.m. And his disciples had been rowing now for the best part of probably eight hours. And they were only halfway across the sea. As the winds and the waves pounded them, they must have been sopping wet, freezing cold from the wind chill, and physically and mentally exhausted. When suddenly, through the howling noise of the wind and the, the crashing of the waves, they see Jesus walking on the water. Now again, I think John assumes that you know from Matthew and Mark's account what they thought they saw. John doesn't mention it, but the other gospel accounts tell us that what they thought they saw was a ghost. And so they cry out in fear and they are terrified. On top of all that's going on now, they're seeing a ghost. I used to remember at this early stage in Jesus' ministry, they did not have a, a clear understanding of who Jesus really was. Mark tells us that even though they had just witnessed the feeding of the 5,000 or the feeding of the 20,000, if we include women and children, they did not understand because their hearts were hardened. That's Mark 6, verse 52. They had seen the miracle of Jesus, but they didn't know who he was. And so as they saw him coming on the water, they thought they were seeing a ghost. Now we, we know, and, and we'll see in a moment, that Jesus was about to calm the storm. We love to know that the same Jesus who calmed the wind, who calmed the waves then, is the same Jesus who is still ruling and reigning over nature today. But I think there's another truth we are meant to see about Jesus before he calms the storm, which is that Jesus also controls the storm. 
You see, the, the wind and the waves, they're not like a naughty puppy who wreaks, wreaks havoc uh, in Carl and Amy's garden when no one is looking um, until kind of Jesus steps in and says, now sit, stop. No, Jesus is the one who spoke every molecule of air into existence. He's the one who created the land and the sea. He's the one who spread the stars and the planets out like a curtain across the heavens and names them. He's the one who determines the seasons and the weather patterns, who commands the oceans, you can come this far and no further. And he's the one who tells the wind where to blow. And so as Jesus dismissed the 20,000 fair weather Christians from the soft green grass of the Galilean hillside, he deliberately sent 12 disciples into the midst of a raging storm in the middle of the sea so that he could reveal to them the lesson of true faith in an almighty God. This storm, as with every storm in our lives, it's not something which catches Jesus by surprise. It's not something which Jesus suddenly has to respond to and try and fix. As hard as it may be to try and get our heads and our hearts around this, every circumstance of our lives is one in which Jesus is purposing for our good. I love that both Matthew and Mark tell us that when Jesus saw that they were being tortured by the wind and the waves, he came to them. We see that in Matthew 14.25 and Mark 6.48. We've just sung it in the song. Jesus said, if I am lost, he will come to me. It was dark. It was cold, it was wet. They had been tortured for eight hours by the storm. They were only halfway across. Whichever way they turned, the shore was equally far at that point. How on earth would they survive even one more hour of this? And then we read, Jesus came to them. But his coming to them, instead of bringing great peace and comfort, actually drove them to terror. Their lack of understanding of who Jesus was, their lack of faith in believing all that he had shown them so far, it led in that moment to an irrational fear which terrified them. But we are told by both Matthew and Mark that immediately, immediately Jesus spoke to them. When he saw their terror, when he saw their lack of understanding and their confusion, he did not rebuke them, but immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. What amazing words of peace and calm that must have been, even though they did not yet fully understand. Just to hear those words of Jesus, the voice of Jesus. Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Now, the words that Jesus uses in response to the disciples' fear is quite significant. Because in the Greek, Jesus says, Ego, Amy, which can mean it is I, but it is also the exact construction used every single time Jesus made his I am statements in the rest of John's gospel. I am the bread of life. 
I am the light of the world. Before Abraham was, I am. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine. Now, where, does those, where do those I am statements come from? Well, back in Exodus chapter 3, you recall in Exodus 3, people of Israel in slavery in Egypt, God sends Moses to go to Pharaoh. Go to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go. And Moses says to God, if the people ask, who sent you? What is his name? What should I say? To which God replied, tell them I am who I am. Tell the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now those words were written originally in Hebrew, but when the Hebrew Bible was translated into Greek, long before the New Testament was written, the Hebrew name for God's self-identification, I am, it was translated into Greek as ego eimi. So when Jesus says in John 8, 58, to the Jews of his day, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am, they knew exactly what he meant. We are told that they knew that he was claiming to be Yahweh. He was claiming to be the eternal pre-existing God of the Old Testament. And so the Jews picked up stones to put him to death. So as we come back to our scene here in the middle of the night, in the middle of the storm, in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, Jesus comes to his 12 disciples. They are harassed. They are terrified. They are confused. They tortured. They beaten to exhaustion. And what does Jesus say? Take courage. Ego, Amy. I am. Do not be afraid. Ego, Amy. I am who I am. Before Abraham was, I am. In the midst of the storm, I am. It was those very words of Jesus which Matthew's accounts, account led to Peter saying, Lord, if it is you, if it's really you, command me to come to you on the water. And we know that Jesus said, come. And Peter got out of the boat and he walked on the water towards Jesus. Only I am can walk on the waves of the storm. And only I am can command a person of little faith to do the impossible. Now, I don't want to get too sidetracked on Peter's walking on the water yet. It's not in John's account. But I think it is helpful to consider another point of application for us here this evening. So far, I've mentioned that the disciples were in this predicament out of obedience to Jesus. This led them into the storm. This was Jesus' purpose for them. And, and so as he, saw them, as he came to them, as he saw them struggling, he came to them. That's great comfort for us this evening. But what about those times in our lives when the storm that we find ourselves in is as a result of our own making? What if we're in a mess because of our own foolishness, our own sinfulness that has landed us in hot water or as in Peter's case, deep water? Does that place us then outside of the grace and the purposes of God? I think thankfully Peter's account shows us that even when we take our eyes off Jesus, because of fear, because of temptation, 
because of any other reason due to unbelief that the grace of God extends even there. We read in Matthew 14 verse 30 that as Peter began to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately, immediately Jesus reached out his hand and took hold of Peter. What a gracious instruction this should be for our own souls tonight. That even when we drift from the Lord, even when we take our eyes off him and we doubt and we sink into deep waters, that Jesus has not moved. And as soon as we cry out to him, Lord, save me, Lord, help me, he is right there to rescue us and to put us back in the boat. But finally tonight, we see that all three gospel accounts kind of realign uh, with John in verse 21. But we need all three to see the full picture. So I'm going to read a combined uh, sort of version of the end of this account. I'm going to piece it together from all three gospels. I'm going to read Mark first, and then Matthew, and then John. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, because their hearts were hardened. Then Matthew says, then those in the boat worshiped Jesus, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. And then John tells us, then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. I think we meant to see a progression here in the response of these disciples as the reality of who Jesus is really dawns on them. Mark tells us that they were utterly astounded They were amazed because they did not yet understand who Jesus is. Matthew then tells us that their confusion turned into worship as they recognized Jesus as the Son of God. And then John tells us that their fear and their confusion was replaced with a great desire and joy. The word glad there, they were glad to take him into the boat in the ESV, uh, is translated as willing or wanted to in some of the other translations. And it really means to desire something strongly because it brings delight. The disciples desired to bring Jesus into the boat because he brought them delight. Once the disciples realized who Jesus was, Their pain and their toil and their suffering was replaced with rest. It was replaced with worship. Their confusion was replaced with this great desire for and a joy in Jesus. And so as we close tonight, one of the challenges with a sermon like this is that we can miss the flow of the bigger picture. What you will see as you zoom out on this whole chapter six of John's gospel is that this incident of Jesus walking on the water, it's sandwiched in the middle of the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 and the great sermon of Jesus on being the bread of life. And this is because the real story here is about Jesus revealing his true identity to his disciples. Remember what John's purpose is for writing the gospel? John's purpose for recording these miraculous signs, John 20 verse 30, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So Jesus did the signs firstly for his disciples, 
so that they would believe in him. And then John recorded them for us so that we might believe in him, and that by believing in him we might have life in his name. And so as we just step back and we look at this chapter as a whole, we see Jesus walking away from 20,000 fair-weather Christians to put 12 men through an intense night of torture and pain and fear to teach them a lesson about true faith in the Son of God, to reveal to them that as the Son of God, he sees everything, he is with them in everything, he controls everything, and if they receive him into their boat, he will bring them safely to the other side. The disciples of Jesus climbed into the boat on the one side of the lake as fair weather followers, I think it would be fair to say, because they didn't understand, but they climbed out of the boat on the other side as fully committed disciples of Jesus. Now, how do we know this? Well, after the, the crowds the next day, they follow Jesus to the other side of the lake, and after listening to Jesus' whole sermon about the fact that he is the bread of life, and that unless they eat his flesh and drink his blood, they will not inherit eternal life. But whoever feeds on Jesus, abides in him and he in them, they will live forever. We are told in John chapter 6, verse 60, that the people said to themselves, this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? Who can accept it? Now just read with me from chapter 6, verse 66 onwards in John's gospel. It's at the end of this account. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. And so Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. On the one side of the lake, Mark told us that they saw the miracle, but they did not understand. Their hearts were hardened. But on this side of the lake, Peter says, where else shall we go, Lord? Where else? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. It's what they once were, what they now are. What made the difference? When did the transformation take place? When did these men change from follower to disciple, from Fear to faith, from confusion to content, from being a warrior into a worshiper. It all changed in the middle of the lake, in the middle of the storm, when they received Jesus into their boat. So perhaps tonight you are struggling painfully against the headwinds of life. Perhaps you're being bashed by the waves of trouble and doubt and suffering. You just seem to come up for air as a Christian and another wave just hits you from the side. Perhaps you're being tortured by your own bad choices that you've made along the way. And it's dark. If you're honest tonight, it's dark and you feel alone. And no matter which way you look, the shoreline is very far away. Jesus wants you to know that he sees you. He's interceding for you. And through his Holy Spirit, he comes to you.
He's not waiting for you to make it to the other side. He's not asking you to get there on your own. He comes to you in the midst of the storm, walking on the waves, reigning over the storm, and he says to you, I am. Do not be afraid. The question is, will you receive him into your boat tonight? Let's pray. Our gracious Lord God, how we thank you tonight for Jesus. How we thank you that he is God in the flesh, God with us, Emmanuel. That he does not wait for us to make our way to you, but he comes to us. That he has done, as our song said earlier, he has come to us first and foremost in the cross to reconcile us to yourself. And so we thank you for the wonderful encouragement of your word tonight that even in the midst of the storms of life, he sees, he intercedes, he comes to us and he invites us to find our rest and our peace in him. And it is he ultimately who gets us to the other side. Oh Lord, Forgive us for so often fighting the battles of this life on our own instead of lifting our eyes in the midst of the storm and looking to Jesus who is right there. Won't you come into the boat of our lives today, Lord, whatever the circumstances may be, and bring that calm and that peace that only you can bring as you who began a good work in us will carry it on to completion. We ask this all in his name and for his glory. Amen.